clearly if you are um, a B2B industry in, in Brussels that has mostly predominantly non-politicized technical issues that aren't kind of making the media headlines, you can work in a much more thorough, planable way than if you are a consumer good that is in the public scrutiny and is kind of very mediatizable like us. I think the biggest challenge for sectors like us, but anyone actually doing policy advocacy at the moment, you need to have a long-term plan and strategy, but at the same time, you need to be hugely alert to, to do the daily firefighting. Welcome to another episode of Speak Like a CEO, the leading podcast on CEO communications. My name is Oliver Aus, best-selling author and CEO of EO Ipso Communications, and our guest today is Ulrich Adam. He's the Director General of Spirits Europe, which represents the producers of spirits like whiskey, gin, and cognac to ensure their voice is heard in all relevant debates. And while that sounds like a fun job, it is also a challenging one, especially from a communications perspective. Welcome, Ulrich. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, glad to be here. Now, I'm glad I can convince you to come on the podcast. And I did this um, kind of cheekily coming to your office, sharing a glass of whiskey with you. And you guys have a wonderful bar in the office, which I really appreciate it. And say, well, you have so many interesting communications experiences and challenges that would be really interesting to talk about those on the podcast. Well, glad to be here and talk a bit about our shared experiences, successes, challenges. <laughs> ask, what, ask whatever comes to your mind. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with the fun part. So what do you enjoy about working in the spirits industry? <laughs> well, of course, the most enjoyable um, point of, of this job is, is is the sector that you represent. And, you know, I've, I've been 18 years in Brussels representing all sorts of industries, business to business, business to consumer industry. And uh, the, the idea, the main... Uh, um, joy about this sector, of course, is that it's a very tangible product that pretty much everyone knows, and many many people enjoy, and and you can enjoy it. So um, you know there, there are many passionate industries with many pa you know amazing communications challenges in Brussels, and you can have a lot of fun in these. But uh, the one thing that stands out here is you have a marvelous um, collection of wonderful products that you can taste, smell and share with other people. And, and that makes it very special. Plus all the, the places you can visit um, where these uh, products are um, produced. And, and that, 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 that's a, a particularity of this position, of course, that, that gives the extra um, uh, you know, enjoyment to, to, to this job, which, which of course, at the same time is, uh, you know, 95% of the time, a classical advocacy trade association communications job in, in, in the, in the EU sphere in Brussels. Yeah. Uh, what did, I didn't realize until we talked about this in more detail that, uh, how rooted in our culture, uh, and how important for the economy spirits are. That's right. Um, I mean, cultural roots, it, it really started off in Europe, uh, you know, about more. more we, than... we invented spirits, right? <laughs> well, actually, it wasn't us. I mean, in that sense, I mean, distillation of, as a technique was known to the ancient Greeks. Um, and it was actually in Sicily by um, the Saracens um, and, and, and by, by the, by the, by the um, Muslimic rulers at that time, who really started to um, distill alcohol around the 12th, 13th century. 
And uh, initially, it was only done for medical purposes, um, for disinfection particularly, and uh, until somebody tried to taste it and drink it. And, and, and it was um, ever since uh, things have taken off um, dynamically and essentially the, the products, you know, the, the distillation of alcohol, of drinkable alcohol, spirit drinks then started to spread from the south of Europe to the north of Europe, moving further eastwards. And with all, you know, with all the regional um, folklore and, and, and agricultural realities that people, you know, had at the time. So, you know, that's why you have these manifold traditions um, that differ very much even from valley to valley in, in a country like Germany. I mean, that's just, you know, one country had, wine, you know, one valley has wine. So you know, they looked into producing brandy. Um, the other one has apple orchards and you do you do a fruit spirit. So very much the climatic and agricultural realities um, shaping the, the, the tradition of spirit distillation across Europe. And, and that's a huge variety and it's very much alive. It's very much driven by this huge diversity. Although, of course, in, in the modern era now, in, in the modern production era, we do have some heavyweight categories that are particularly successful. And we have a phenomenon of, of so-called global categories and global brands that, that cannot, you know, the, sort of say the superstar brands and categories that cannot be missed in any bar across the globe that 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 has a certain level so you need to have your collection of scotch irish whiskey cognac brandy rums and 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 and, and some you know landmark gin brands but 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 within this sort of say you know global category of champion categories and champion brands underneath you have a huge variety until today and and and, and that's also the, the special thing it's it never stops there's from the beginning there's been huge level of innovation in the spirit string sector um, because distillation is just a start you know then you can do aging you can you can age the product in different um, casks in different years different varieties in different climates all of that will you know alter the taste and of course once you you've aged it and bottled it uh, you can then mix it <laughs> and mix it and cocktails you know there's endless innovation there and and huge, you know, different combinations. So, so it's it's on the one hand very traditional sector, which very proud of the, the the traditions that have developed in Europe. At the same time, very proud of the innovation, and and the ever new products that are being launched week by week, um, um, in 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 this sector to 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 meet new consumer tastes and fashions. And it's quite important for the economy as well, isn't it? So it, it, yeah, it, that's the same part. Now I forgot this. From the farmer to to the mixologist in a, in a fancy bar. Yeah, I think the the primary impact is, of course, a local one in in rural communities. So uh, you know, if you want to go to to, to distilleries, you, you you barely find them in 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 the city centre. Um, and uh, so so it's a very important role in in local economies particularly in in you know in these big cluster areas you know think of scotland ireland cognac Jerez, or other areas um but also it's it's scattered around you know i mean you you do do you do have distilleries in the rural areas that they're the important part of the local economy and then of course all the downstream value particularly now in the past two years um, you know the, the value of spirit strings for the hospitality sector is very important tourism you know increasingly we had before the crisis we had record years year on year in terms of tourism visits to distilleries in europe and uh, finally uh, for europe very very important is the export value we are one of the 
most important um, agri-food exports, very high-value product, um, cherished all over the world. Um, so we, we, you know, that that's also um, creating um, economic um, benefits in all across Europe um, as a result. Now, I think we, most of us enjoy, you know, a nice cocktail, a good glass of whiskey or gin or whatever, you know, our, our, our drink of choices, but they're obviously critical voices as well. So what, what's the main criticism voiced against spirits? Well, just, just to correct you there on the first issue, it's not, it's not an issue inherent in the product or attached to the product. It's attached to the use and consumption. And that might be a fine but very important difference because – you know, you know, pretty much anything in life can be used or abused. And of course, it's not different in no way to, to alcohol. It is in a way the inherent ambivalence uh, culturally as well in alcoholic beverages, which, um, you know, have, you know, have been in, in the human history for, for thousands of years. And of course, in the modern age today, we, you know, the big challenge is that we, need to every you know society and and everyone uh, involved and and in in the production and sales of alcoholic beverages you know we have a shared common um, interest to reduce harmful consumption and uh, you know the, that is that is a big challenge indeed from a from a policy point of view and also from a communications point of view however uh, i think it's um it's 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 a very interesting debate um in the sense that um, I think many may not know, and often media reporting may be selective, but of course in Europe we're actually in a, in a good place at the moment with regards to harmful consumption of alcoholic beverages, um, which which isn't entirely surprising if you look at the parameters of, of European society, a relatively well-off society demographically getting older so you know we're catering more and more to consumers who are looking to trade up and and to look for premium um, um, enjoyment with our products and and that was also of course a big driver that things are moving in the right direction very important as well you know sometimes uh, people are stuck in the idea that you know we're not anymore a volume-based market you know we're volume based you know volume sales of spirits in Europe have been flat or declining in many countries per capita consumption generally as well of alcoholic beverages haven't you know generally since the 19 late 1970s 1980s so what we're seeing or how we as a business work is we work by value growth we mm. work by you know primarily by putting out to to consumers high-end products as we discussed you know very nicely matured whiskies and uh, or, or cognacs um, and, and 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 the cocktail experience as well. So the big driver of growth commercially, economically in our sector is through premiumization, and premiumization does you know inherently address some of the 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 beneficial trends in 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 harm reduction that we're seeing across Europe. That that may be as a general contextual answer. But of course, that's you know that's that's good. But I think it's not enough, and uh, I think that's where our place must be. That we as a sector, you know, are trying to do the right thing beyond that, and try to be part in in a dialogue with uh, policymakers, with um, other stakeholders and NGOs, to see and discuss and define what role we can do as a as a sector to be um, as you know the most responsible we can be. 
And and I think there, again, a lot of progress has been made. I think you need to be realistic as well. Of course, you know that, you know, it's a complex issue, harm reduction of alcohol. And, and there's no easy answers, I think. And uh, even though it may be tempting to, to look at, you know, very focused, you know, policy recipes, um, if on the on the broader scheme of things, I think it's it's something that is very, you know, it's a complex issue that we need to have a, a constant discussion about how we best address it. But we also need to see that it's happening by and large in Europe in in a context that is positive. And, you know, it's great to be in, in a good trend environment. But of course, the more progress you make, the harder it'll be to keep up that pace. Right you know, to make the incremental progress. So we need to think hard and smart. Um, we're doing a lot as industry. I think we have a lot of self-regulatory commitments in terms of our um, responsible, you know, responsibilities in, in marketing and advertising, in consumer information, and also in responsible drinking initiatives that, you know, we, we really push out the message proactively to consumers what it means to, to drink and, and serve our products responsibly and, and and support um, the general trend environment that I was talking about, um, but yeah. yes, it's that's a big debate. It's a complex debate, um, and uh, but it's of course one thing that we need to be very present in, and we want to, as I said before, we want to be a constructive actor there, um, open to discuss and 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 doing what I think is the right thing to do. That, that sounds great. I mean, there are always some people who want you to go further. For instance, there are campaigners, NGOs who argue that alcohol should go the way of cigarettes, that there should be warnings, for instance, warning labels on each bottle. How do you, how do you respond to such requests? Well, first of all, there's, a, there's an inherent difference in terms of the product-specific um, um profile and, and and the use pattern and you know you don't you know the, the classic answer is always that you know even the first cigarette harms i think the same cannot be said you know of alcoholic beverages and the moderate consumption and uh, so so there's an inherent difference in terms of of um of of the products between tobacco and alcoholic beverages um even though of course others may try to to, to, to not make this differentiation, but I think it's fundamental um, for a serious discussion, to start a serious discussion, how we go about things. Um, now, if we look at, um, you know, uh, in terms of warning labels per se, um, I think that there's, there's various elements why, um, you know, we should be a bit more cautious in going down that route. One, one thing is, of course, that warning labels, you know, if you're really honest, um, I think the the available research isn't isn't particularly convincing of the effect of warning labels. Now you may say politically that you want to ostracize certain products and just you know downgrade or upgrade them, but but I think that's that's a bit of you know that's a bit of a hypocritical approach. And the other element, most importantly, is that um, for warning labels need to be you know they need to the bar is very high. They need to be um, you know they need to be proportionate. They need to be evidence-based and they need to be meaningful. So if you take these three criteria, what really comes out? I think what, what activists sometimes look for is, a, 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 you know, a bold, shortened statement, but that may not be particularly, you know, that might be disproportionate. It might not be particularly meaningful and it might not reflect the actual evidence. So, you know, um, I think that there's different, you know, there, there's different nuances to be discussed. 
it's not that you know um, a, a certain in, you know warning label in certain countries around the world has been implemented but i think it's it's something that deserves a, a very careful and 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 serious debate rather than sort of say i think what 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 the challenge sometimes is that some proclaim oh that's the way forward and once we do that everything will be fine and that will be a great leap forward um, never, you know, and, and the debate is closed. But I think it's 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 the exact opposite. I think you know the debate is very open. You want to think really what makes sense there, and also from a discriminatory perspective, you get in terms of food law, you get into all kinds of sorts of problems. I mean, where do you start? Where do you stop there? You know, you cannot just discriminate against one category. Um, okay, what do you do? You know, you do something like what California does with the general you know, warning label that, you know, every, um, you know, um, Starbucks handles coffee needs to have a warning label at the shop that they're handling carcin potentially carcinogenic substances. Okay. You know, is that, you know, that may be evidence-based, but then it's not particularly meaningful. Right. And, and there's, there's also another dimension here, right, which is about personal responsibility and the free will we have that, as citizens in a democracy, we can choose what we want to partake in or what you know what what beverage or food we want to consume so as you say where do you draw the line but is is that an argument that that plays well or that you use in your communications that as as grown-ups as citizens of europe we should be able to choose what we consume i think we should yes i think and i i think i think the best approach is you know individual responsibility and trust in the individual educated empowered individual decisions should is a good way forward um, so again, this means you, you want to inform um, and you want to be fully transparent in terms of the information, nutrition information, ingredient listing, and, and even other information, sustainability-related information. That's what the consumer is looking for, um, and, and that should be given. Um, but then indeed, as you say, the final choice is, is, is the consumer's. And, and I think I would, you know, be, you know, it's what, you know, is that really a, the role of, of, of policy and the government to, 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 um, to be overly directional in terms of, of, of influencing or, you know, I dare say even manipulating those choices. But I think, uh, you know, I think the concern from a more from a personal point of view is that, yeah, that, that touches upon fundamental questions of, of, of what, you know, a liberal democratic society should look like. And uh, I'm not sure <laughs> for the last two years whether we've seen the best of it in terms of handling certain crises and, and also in, in terms of empowering individuals and trusting them. I would say we're not necessarily at this moment in time in the past years, you know, we, we, you know distrust into the individual actions seems to be a bit um, the order of the day. And again, I don't think that's a, that's a very sincere or very um, good way to pursue both in, in regulating particular issues but also as a society overall yeah i i, I agree on that and I, I was wondering how the corona crisis affected the industry and what are you doing to help those affected in the industry do you running any campaigns or what are you doing on the communication side yeah i think i mean it's been a been a heavy heavy <laughs> last 22 months of course, such a such a shock comes sudden and and changes the whole way how you run business, your business, and how you products. The most important immediate thing we noticed was um, the drastic uh, falls in in airport sales, so travel retail sales completely um, grinded to a halt. 
um, in line with international and, and domestic air travel. And that's not an insignificant part. Some some of our members are, you know, about, you know, up to 20% are sold in, in travel retail for certain brands. So this is significant. And that was pretty much gone from one day to the next. So there was an immediate crisis effect. There was, a, a you know, the next effect, uh, apart from selling in supermarkets, which, of course, was always continued and saw naturally certain increases. The, the 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 big shutting down of the hospitality sector is was a huge impact not only for us but also for all our partners the bars restaurants hotels um and uh, and and that's a huge challenge because the sector really comes alive in in the hospitality settings particularly for product launches for you know for cocktail competitions and the like um, you know, you need the, you know, the, you need this, you know, you need the convivial settings in bars and restaurants to, to, to really um, get the best out of our sector. And 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 the big concern, the longer things dwelled on, was of course that you know the risk that many of these venues could be jeopardized, some of them forever, and some many have closed down. So I think the longer things dragged on, you know, you know, a short-term crisis is something different than something medium long term you know where we are almost now and that is just you know you know from a business viability point of view how many of our partners will survive there because once you lose the venues and once you have a serious crisis in hospitality it'll be very very hard to to bring that back you know it's something else to shut something for a couple of weeks and reopen um, but you know we're, we're kind of in a middle scenario where, where restrictions you know remain they're kind of slowly being scaled back but it's you know you know how it is it's it's almost two yeah. steps forward one step back it's a very difficult relationship but here also you know spirits have a, have a very important role to play um, to our partners there I mean they are important for the, the financial and commercial viability of bars and restaurants spirits are, are, are an important uh, part there and we've worked a lot with these venues and many of our companies have um, supported the bartenders associations in European countries and uh, you know contributed to the the viability of, of the struggling sector so that's something and we're, 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 we're very much engaged in uh, on the on on, on, on the on, of course on on, on, a, on a better side in the supermarket sales in the classical retailing of spirits, um, you know, some things have, you know, some, some, you know, the yeah. volumes that value that wasn't sold in, in hospitality then shifted more to the retail. But there, of course, that's a structural issue where, um, you know, you have winners and losers as well. And as a representing the entire sector, um, you know, many smaller distillers who are almost exclusively selling in hospitality venues suddenly found themselves cut out from their, you know, one and only a sales right. channel, and then many of them, of course, then went online and, and started an e-business. But starting an e-business, it's not something that happens from day to the next, and just can't replace, um, you know, from a business model point of view, what you've suddenly lost through the restrictions. So a lot of the smaller distilleries have been struggling, and that's also, you know, the long-term risk there is that that we could lose some of the huge diversity and and in the sector and that's a huge concern for us and that's why it's good to see we're we're hopefully working ourselves out of this but uh, the other element uh, again was exports we've seen a lot of trading restrictions around the world um with some you know countries taking very extreme measures whether you know it was a full prohibition in panama from march to may 2020 and uh, south africa by now 
were counting it. They had fourth temporary sales bans for alcohol. Um, we're hopefully not seeing a fifth one now, but uh, that's been very, very disruptive and, and very problematic as well. And it throws back a lot of things, possibly for months, for years, because when you do such extreme measures like a complete sales ban, what you immediately will see, particularly in spirits, is an increase in illicit supply. And yep. once people switch to the gray market, um, it's very hard to switch them back. So you know, again, you know, you know, there might be knee-jerk solutions that that sound very tough and 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 needed in a, in a crisis situation, but the long-term damage and impact that it may carry. Is, is only slowly emerging um, a couple of months later. So, again, that's that's added to the challenge. So, no, we've not been short of short of challenges in the past 22 months, and and it's still we're not we're not fully out of that that one yet. I'm afraid. Absolutely, and I was wondering what what did you and your colleagues learn from first of all from from the many years of experience you have in the sector, but also specifically over the last couple of years in terms of communications. Communications, yeah, it's changed a lot, I think, you know, particularly in government affairs, in Brussels, in, in advocacy, but also in internal communications, in trade associations, things used to be a lot more formal and settled 15 years ago. And now, as we all know, everyone who works in professional services, things are ultimately so much more fast-moving, dynamic, and 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 move and, and take many twists and tweaks during the day, whether it's on legislative files, whether it's on media debates. Um, things have just become so much more fast-moving and dynamic, and you need to adjust to that. Um, all of us need to adjust to that, but the trade association, of course, as well. Trade associations, by nature, you know, sometimes have structural challenges in answering. To, this, to these needs because uh, you need to forge a consensus, you need to bring a lot of people in, you need to build a strong consensus, you need to hear everyone. Um, that makes it harder sometimes to, uh, to, to, you know, you need to first get the consensus before you can move. So you cannot just simply zigzag. So what's very important is, is the internal cohesion of the membership and making sure that you define also internally good and strong strategic goals and mandates that however allow you know the membership and and the secretariat to you know a certain room of maneuver we cannot you know check every little thing we do with the members we need to have a good trust level we need to have complete transparency but we also need to have the mandate to to move quickly and react to things that may happen on twitter or that that happen in in the policy debate in Brussels, where we cannot, you know, wait a week to to to, to come with a position paper, we need to be able to, you, to. Nowadays, you need to be able to react much more quickly, and 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 get into the debate. Otherwise, you'll be sidelined, or or you you know you, your silence will be seen as a non-engagement. I think again, they come back to this comes back to the point. We you know we want to be active, we want to be proactive, we want to be constructive. And, and as part of the policy dialogues that are happening here. So you need, you need to be quick on your heels this, these days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was working in uh, basically in Brussels and policymaking, uh, political communications uh, 20 years ago, 
there wasn't a there weren't a social media. There was very little media interest. Uh, things were moving relatively slowly in public affairs. So you know you'd always have time to to contribute to a debate, and you know not much would happen from one week or even one month to the next. Now you are you're on Twitter, you're on YouTube, you're on Facebook, uh, you're you're on, on on LinkedIn, obviously, both as a, as you know you personally as well as Spirits Europe. So how do you? How do you find and how do you deal with all these different communications channels that are reaching clearly beyond just the immediate circle of decision makers? Yeah, it's a challenge, but yeah, indeed, it's changed a lot. I think when I started uh, in Brussels, we were we were still doing monthly reports. Yes, we did, <laughs> and and that, and that was a standard and routine work, and and was was then hot off the press information for the clients. Um, you know, clearly that pace uh, has changed, and as you said, the, the audiences have have broadened. So yeah, it's not easy to to uh, to to get this um, all under one hat every day. But uh, I think you can. I think you you need to be you need to have a clear, you know, well organized strat strategic priorities. You need to to be clear with the members, and the members need to be clear. We cannot, you know, on the, well, it, it is actually more complicated than that for trade associations because one thing trade associations compared to, um, you know, other entities cannot do, we, we need to be comprehensive. We need to follow every issue that does have an impact on our sector. We cannot simply cut out and say, okay, just because this is a fringe issue, we're not going to tell our members. I mean, the members expect us to really cover the whole of the Brussels agenda. And as many of you, as is known, you know, Brussels regulates all parts of our daily life and it's not different for spirits drink. So by default, you are, you know, you're faced with a huge agenda that you need to follow anyway. But beyond that, you need to, you know, the expectation nowadays is you need to proactively engage and you need to shape and, and, and advocate. And, and then, you know, finally things take tweaks and turns, particularly, um, you know, if you, if you lift through the Trump era and trade policy and EU-US trade relations, it was politics via tweets and, and it came at, at any time of the night and you need to react within a, a couple of hours. So it's much more jumpy and there are a lot more curveballs thrown at you. Um, I think, again, it's you need to have, you know, in the end, it's not rocket science. You need to have a good, good, good strategic priority grid sheet. You need to have a good work plan, which is the basis. You need to have an able team. Um, to 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 the skill team to to support and and do the work and you need essentially the trust of the members that they also give you the freedom to to move within the in the defined mandate without trying to micro control or or secretariat trying to you know to try to try to do it in a in a bureaucratic way so so it's 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 a scaled up approach I think you start with you know normal project project management basics or work plan basics, but you need to go far beyond nowadays. You need to add this extra. You need to, you know, define proactive strategies and you need to have the liberty in, you know, you need to have skilled and able uh, secretariat teams that, that, that can do these spontaneous and, you know, trust-based reactions uh, to a fast-moving debate, which cannot always be pre-checked. Uh, to but the they need to be empowered, right? That that's that's absolutely key in my view. That they are empowered and don't have to check with all the members when there's a new issue or you know just just something on on the debate that day. Yeah, absolutely. No trust is trust is the oil that that makes you know applications work. And of course, you need to you know we we work according our internal statutes and our committees and our processes, and we need to make sure everything is properly 
sort of say um, working from that side of things. But but beyond that, again, you know, on the day to day, things need to happen much faster nowadays, and you need to be able to, unless you want to be a silent bystander. But that cannot be the, you know, at least certainly not for B two C sectors that are in the public eye. Clearly, if you are um, a B two B industry um, in in Brussels, that has very has mostly predominantly non-politicized technical issues that aren't kind of making the media headlines. You can work in a much more, you know, thorough, um, planable way than 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 if you are a consumer good um, that 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 is you know that is in the public scrutiny and 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 and, and is kind of very mediatizable like us. Um, it doesn't work like that, you know. It's it, but that's also I think that was very much the challenge I was looking for when I, I moved here. I mean, I loved my previous job, which was in, in farm machineries or tractors and combine harvesters. Fascinating machines, fascinating industry. However, of course, much less in the in the public eye and in the public's mind, and and with far less, you know, politicizable macro issues than than alcoholic beverages. Yeah, for for sure. And I was wondering, um, which of the social media channels is most important and is most able to contribute to the debate in Brussels? Is it Twitter? Yes, yes, yeah, Twitter. I think Twitter has been a bit misunderstood in Brussels, or often misunderstood. I think um, Twitter is 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 almost primarily Twitter is an, is a targeted a good Twitter feed is a targeted intelligence gathering tool. Um, and it is wonderful for internal communications. So the members see where you are. You know, they see that you're active. That my colleagues and me, we are in a meeting. We're doing this. We're doing that. You know, if we send an email, people just don't, you know, half read it or it doesn't have an impact. If you if you have a picture and see, oh, they they realize you're here. You did this. Um, that that's very important. Of course, finally and ultimately, everyone dreams of a big impactful Twitter advocacy campaign. But I think there, you know, yes, you can send out messages, but uh, I think almost, uh, you know, in relative, you know, that is a noble task and it can be done. And, and of course, we're doing it. But on, on the day to day, almost, um, you know, it's almost more important as well to see where are the institutional actors moving. It's incredibly helpful to see, oh, right. Yeah, today the commission is doing that. Or I see somebody in the parliament, they're having this debate or they're having the delegation visit here. Stuff you, you pick up very easily things that you know indeed you know it's it's i mean their technologies advanced so much i mean it's and the speed again as well you know what what was your monthly report before is now your 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 twice or three times daily checking of your tweet to see yeah. you know what what's what's your bubble doing both members institutional actors ngos the media what's happening and not ha happening always you know a bit what's happening on, on the summit level, you know, what, what's foreign policy challenges or, or the high politics areas, but also as well the targeted issues and the very specific debates that um, that we are following. Again, that's that's the, the beauty in Brussels, you know, the, the beauty in Brussels in is in, 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 in very specific policies um, that, that not not all of which are particularly huge in the public domain or that, that there's a high level of public awareness, but there's a fierce... Yeah, debate in Brussels on so many specific policies, um, and 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 that's something that Twitter um, actually can can actually give you know be, be an important tool also to facilitate the debate and put people in touch, and and remain in touch in a virtual form. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think in the policy making arena and uh, in journalism, Twitter, Twitter is a, is a must. And exactly in the way you described it, it's not just uh, to send out messages. Uh, primarily, it's to to understand the debate in real time and contribute to the debate in real time, both internally with your members in your case or your your employees, your teams, as well as um, you know your your audiences, decision makers, the media, and, and other stakeholders. Ulrich, fantastic, super insightful conversation. Thank you. What be a final piece of communications advice? <laughs> final piece of communications advice. Um, I think the biggest challenge, given what we talked about, for you know sectors like us or actors, but anyone actually doing policy advocacy at the moment, is that you always, and, and it may sound banal, but it's hard in the day-to-day, you need to have a long-term, you know, plan and strategy but at the same time you need to be hugely alert to to do the daily firefighting and and you you don't you know don't indeed you can't choose between both you can't just do the firefighting or you can but then you must be very aware that you will never change anything in the long term or or, you know maybe by accident but clearly not by design Um, at the same time if you just you know you cannot simply just focus on on a super long-term strategy and ignore the daily, you know, the daily quarrels that you need to engage in. And and that is, you know, the day has a limited number of hours. We have a limited number of attention, you know, limited attention span. And, and getting that right and also not fooling yourself, I think, is the biggest challenge. Because you can be, of course, you can have an immediate impact every day. But you might look after a year and say, well, the, the broader debate hasn't advanced an inch, you know. And 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 you may just you know I think that's something that 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 is key, and it's something that you just need to um, you keep in the back of your mind and find tools and strategies and tactics every day anew that that you know that that this you know the short term and the long are kind of reconciled and 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 successful. I fully agree. I think a top communicator today. Um, has to switch between the strategic and the operational tactical many times each day and feel comfortable in both arenas. I think that the big strategist who doesn't understand necessarily the ins and out of social media is no longer relevant. Likewise, if you only understand the ins and out of the day-to-day and the tactics and you're lacking that strategic oversight, that's not good either. But do, do you have any sort of top tip from your side? How do you actually execute that? <laughs> It's a trade secret. No, <laughs> no, um, um, no. Uh, I don't. Th- I mean, look, it's not rocket science either. I think you just need to, um, again, and and that's where you need a bit of political acumen and also, also, a bit of intelligence and analysis to to do your homework. But I think the key thing is that you that you have a good understanding or a bit of a prediction where where will the policy go you know, just by default, what's the default line? And, and you know, it, it may not be 100% accurate, but, you know, you can, in, in certain topics like on sustainability, I think the commission is very, very clear with the Green Deal and the 2030 and 2040, 2050 ambitions. You kind of get an idea where the, where the ship is heading and then think about, you know, yes, I think that's that's okay. We, we, we are all in favor of sustainability, and then see where, where can we engage, where can we really make a difference, where we, where can we advance that as a private sector, where we can can we go ahead of the curve, and where may we encounter 
you know, structural challenges, where could policy making overshoot or where could suddenly be potential costs of, 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 of this direction, of this policy direction that will be challenging in the short term or the long term. You need to, yeah, you need to map the, the sort of say the, the arena and, and understand very much, you know, where, where do you need to fight, um, you know, for, for challenges that could, could hit you? And where do you really want to go ahead and actually accelerate some of the, the, the policies that are going on? And that, that's a difference as well. Classically, 15 years ago, I think most briefs in consultancy came as a defensive strategy. Clients called and said, right. oh, my God, you know, in three weeks, um, you know, the commission will decide this and this and this will kill my business. You need to help us. You know, first question, oh, my God, why, why didn't you come a bit earlier? But it was often, you know, OK, many came, of course, a lot earlier. I'm, I'm exaggerating here. You know, in two years, this may happen or this may be phased out. We need a strategy to keep it two years longer on the market or you know, you name. But you come with the issue, right? There's something happening, and you respond to it. And today, yeah, yeah. but it's about today, long yeah, I think that changed already long, long time yeah. ago. You know, one of my one of my former bosses said, uh, you know, lobbying is about solving the problem of the legislator. It's mm. not about kind of saying no and being defensive. You need to solve the problem of the legislator and or the policymaker. And in that sense, policymakers aren't, aren't, you know, just, you know, whimsical and, and saying we need to do this or that. They're also answering to a societal demand. They're answering to a voters' demand. They're answering to societal expectations. And although, you know, policymakers and politicians don't like to be seen as, you know, not having a clear sense of direction or not knowing what they do, they, you know, they need the information from the stakeholder community, whether it's NGOs or private sector to feed then some of the, the specific initiatives going forward and assess them and, and know. And, and that's where I think a constructive stakeholder approach is, is important that, you know, indeed solve, solve the, the problems are, are in front of us. Um, you know, we, you know, we need to focus solution oriented. Yeah, of course, you also have to, you know, issues where you think, oh my God, this we need to avoid or this we need to stop. But, but I think by and large in, in Brussels that has changed the most, more successful lobbying actors in Brussels, whether it's NGOs or industry associations or, or single companies or sectors, are those who, who, who present a positive constructive vision and, and, and try to help, so to say, um, the, 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 the policymakers to, 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 to get things right. And, and, and that's, that's a question of having the right concepts, the right tonality and, and the right political, um, you know, acumen to, 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 you know, politics a lot about timing. You need to come with the right time. And again, you know, thought leadership is so much more important now. You know, it's not defensive. You need to, you know, you know people ask, but worse, you, you know, also in corporate culture, as you all know, I mean, you know, what's, you know, mission statements, visions, purpose, you know, people are looking for, for broader explanations beyond profit making, um, you know, in the broader direction where we want to be by 20, 30, 40, 50. And and that and that's 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 the whole new I think thing that that's really changed in Brussels. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's a great summary, Ori. Thank you so much. It was super insightful. Much appreciated, and uh, lots of things for me to take away. And uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, thank you for listening, and uh, see you all next week. Wonderful. Thank you so much.